Hey, uh, good morning and welcome to uh, Edinburgh Elementary. My name is Phil. If I uh, haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, uh, I am the lead pastor of this wonderful group of people who call themselves Clarity, and I just want to welcome you. Uh, Last week we began this brand new series around this theme of love and marriage, and so whether today is your first time with us or this is maybe your first time with us in a while, uh, it's uh, it's really a great week to join us as we uh, are starting things new with this new series, New Fall. And as we start this year, uh, this kind of this New Fall series, we want to concentrate. We, talk, we haven't talked about this in a, in a while. Uh, some other churches, they, they do it a lot. They talk about relationship a lot. But uh, we haven't talked about this in a while. And, and um, we, uh, this, this series is dedicated to, to talking about this idea, this concept of what is love and marriage and what does that even look like and how does that even... Um, what, what is maybe a secret to winning? And uh, one of the things that we talked about last week is maybe the, the idea of winning at love is, is actually losing. Now, a few a weeks ago, I was listening to a comedian uh, talk about how our culture has somehow tricked us into, um, into doing the weirdest things in the name of love. I mean, wouldn't you agree that some people do some weird things in the name of love, Right? In the name of love. Uh, for instance, I, <laughs> I, I just thought this was kind of funny, so I'll share it. If it isn't funny, we'll just edit this out of the podcast and whatever. But anyways, the comedian made this observation that uh, giving people flowers to tell them that you love them is kind of weird. I mean, think about it, right? It's like saying, here, now watch these die. Because I love you, Right? In fact, uh, what we should really do is we should give them to people we hate and say, here, you're next. <laughs> and you, butter, you better put your feet in some water or you're going to die, right? So that's, anyways, flowers. And, um, I don't know uh, how many of you are, are old-time music listeners. I, um, I grew up, my father loved Nat King Cole. His father loved Nat King Cole. And so I grew up listening to Nat King Cole. And uh, there's a song by Nat King Cole called Nature Boy. Anyone know that song? Okay, but there's this line at the end of the song. See, some of you remember and know the song. If you don't, you should listen to it. If you don't know, if that's too old for you, 2000. One, Moulin Rouge came out, and David Bowie did a cover of it. It's not as good at all. But anyways, there at the end of the song, there's this line that says this. And the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. I remember my dad uh, used to sing that. I used to watch him sing that to my mom. And she'd be like, oh, stop it. Stop it. Right, so. No matter your age or your relational history... Uh, most of us do desire to be loved well. And some of us, <laughs> I would hope, in return, hope to be those who love well. Which is why when it comes to love, most of us want to know that we are succeeding. When it comes to love in our relationships, yes, we are talking about our marriage relationships, but particularly relationships in general, we want to know that we are winning, as I said last week, or at a minimum, we want to know that success is, is, that is, is being had, that success is possible at showing love or being loved in return. We want to know that that's at least possible. And this is why we launched this series, because we want to give hope that your relationships can be healthy and strong, that regardless 
of how dysfunctional your past is, regardless of how good or bad your parents' relationship was, we want to let you know that there's hope regardless of what the rearview mirror looks like. Now, let me say this right off the bat, uh, because I, I know some of you, when you see the topic of love, you automatically only think that it's about marriage. Um, listen, if you're single, or if you're in high school, or in middle school, and maybe you're just already kind of checking out because you assume this isn't going to apply to you because uh, marriage, even though it may be something that you might hope for, it isn't something that really isn't on your radar. Uh, I want to let you know that, um, that you should probably be taking more notes than anybody because uh, anyone who is uh, over the age of like 40, I'm not yet, but, I, but I've been told, right? I've been told anyone who's been married for maybe longer than five minutes knows this, that the best time to improve your marriage isn't when it begins, but it's before it starts. And so the reality is that you can apply any of these concepts that we're going to be talking about throughout this series to any relationship in life, whether you want to improve your relationship with one of your kids or you want to improve a relationship with another family member or simply just a friendship. These principles apply across the board. Now, while the principles of love we are going to discuss in this series applies across all relationships, here's the reality, right? Uh, There are a bunch of us in here that are married. And so, throughout this series, a bunch of times, we're going to talk about how love intersects with this concept of marriage as well. Now, if last week's message wasn't enough uh, about establishing what love is, this week is all about exploring what marriage is. So last week, we talked about what is love. Baby, don't hurt me. Mm, don't hurt me. Some of you said, why didn't you sing it? I'm like, I don't know. I was like, I sing too much. You're like, but that's your MO. That's why we're here. I'm like, oh man, that's kind of shallow. All right. So I just, there you go. I did it for you. But now we're looking about what, what marriage is. And so to help us explore this, I, I want to take us back to the very beginning of the scriptures to look at what I believe is one of the most compelling arguments for why marriage exists and for what end it exists for. Can you do that? No, that's terrible grammar. You get what I'm saying, right? (laughs) So if you would uh, open up to whatever copy of the scripture you have to Genesis chapter one, this is where we're going to start. Disclaimer, if you're not someone who's a follower of Christ, or if you're not sure if you believe everything you've heard about Jesus and the Bible, This is the part of our talk where we who are followers of Christ anchor our perspective so that we can continue uh, this ongoing journey of learning what it means to submit all of life to Jesus Christ as master and savior. So if you're tempted to check out, which I hope you want, uh, which I hope you won't, um, uh, I, I hope at, at a minimum you, you need to know this, that anything that as, as we talk through the scriptures, you're going to hear words kind of that go like this, you should and you must and, and listen, you get a pass. You don't have to listen to anything we say. You get, you get the, the opportunity to just listen and see how the scriptures guides a Christ follower's life towards pursuing love and marriage. Now, for those of us who are followers of Christ, I don't want you to miss out on the importance of what we're looking at today simply because it seems like an elementary passage of scripture. In fact, I would make the point that those of us who struggle 
to look like Jesus, not in just the way we love our spouses, but the way we love everyone in our circles of influences, we struggle because we either, we either forget what we're going to be reading today as true, or, or we actually find ourselves believing in something other than what the scriptures says is true about love and marriage. So uh, without further ado, let's read a couple of passages together. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1, and then we'll skip to Genesis chapter 2. It's just the next chapter. We'll read this together. I'll do my best to uh, kind of give us the sense, and then I'll hopefully, as we continue in this series, what does it mean to lose that love, and how does that even cast a vision for healthy relationships and a healthy marriage? And I think it all makes sense once we get to the end. But let's just read this together, and uh, let's dive in. Genesis 1, verse 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. And so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Genesis 2, 18 to 25. Then the Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the skies. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, all the wild animals. But still, there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. And the Lord made a woman from the rib. Then the Lord made a woman from the rib, and then he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. And this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Would you just pray with me as we start? God, I would hope that in these next few minutes, as I attempt to take a very familiar story, I think, to some of us who grew up in the church, this story of creation. And explain not only just the theological implications of what this passage has for our everyday lives, but I, I pray that you would help, help me speak the truth in love in ways that as we spur each other towards loving good deeds, we do find ourselves understanding more and more what it means to love like Jesus. By your Holy Spirit and your grace and power, I pray this 
In Jesus' name, amen. Around here, we, uh, who are Clarity Church primarily, um, believe that the, exi- the scriptures exist to give clarity on who God is and what he's done. This is kind of a, uh, a, a general statement, a permission to play type of thing. Those of us who call clarity home are at least leading into, or not, if not fully believing in this idea that the scriptures exist to help us know who God is and what he's done. And while it isn't wrong to search the scriptures for how it helps us make better decisions in life, that's nothing wrong with that. The scriptures at its core is a roadmap for making it clear how we can know who God is. Now, I'm sure uh, no one who is in the middle of trying to sort out the problems in the relationship says, hold on, hold on for a second. I know that we're totally not getting together right now. I know, I know you're upset with me right now, and I know, I know things are kind of tough. I know that we're mad at each other. But what, what do I know about who God is right now? I know none of us say that. I, I know I don't. I don't. I, no one stops and goes, you know what? I think the tension's really thick in the air. Let's just stop for a second and remember who God is and remember what he has done. Question, what if we did? Just, a, just an idea. What if we did? What if at every juncture in our life where it feels like everything is anything but heaven on earth, we're brought back to answer the question, who is God and what has he done? What if? In other words, I think that only when we understand who God is and what he has done can we begin to have this right understanding, to be reminded of a right understanding of who we are and what God wants to accomplish through our lives, which is why we started at the beginning. In other words, in order to answer the question, why and what am I here for, we first need to understand who is God. And what he has done. So, let's just be reminded for a second. Who is God? In this story, God is what? He's the creator. He's the one who made everything. And as the New Testament will tell us, everything, not only was everything made by him, but everything consists because of him. It's crazy to think about it. Everything is held together by him. And what has God done in his creation, particularly between us? What has he done? He has created us what? In his image. In his image. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. In the theological world, there's this, um, so the image of God, Imago Dei, is a doctrine, is a doctrine that states that, um, you know, we don't have time to go really into all of it, so I'll just summarize it to give you the Notes version, but it's basically a doctrine that's, that's, that states that all humans are the deepest expression of God's glory and the greatest display of his power and sovereignty as creator to make all things good. 
This is why Paul wrote what he wrote in the early part of his letter that we uh, referenced last week in Ephesians. Remember where he talks to husbands and wives and tells them how to submit to one another and he gives them this great big uh, you know, treatise on marriage and how to have a great marriage. To lead up to it, he starts in, 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 in Ephesians chapter 2, before he even gets to that part, here's what he sets the groundwork, there, groundwork down and here's what he says. He goes, for we are God's, what? Masterpiece. He did what? Created us. And there's the crazy thing, that there's this idea, and this is, what, this is why the New Testament is good news. Because remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and everything was what? Good, right? And then what happened? Sin entered the world. And all of a sudden, things were broken. But God keeps his promise. He kept his promise. His, and what is his promise? That he wanted to make everything good. And so he made a way. And so what he did, instead of us making us better versions of ourselves, he made a way so that we could be created. Guess what? As this word says, what? Created what? Anew. Some of you... Um, in your relationships, and even how you pursue love, I think we forget this new identity that God has given you, especially if you're a follower of Christ. You are new. You are new. In who? Christ Jesus. Why? So we can do the good things outlined in the New Testament. Right? No, (laughs) so we can do the good things that God planned for us when? Long ago. What is he referring to? The beginning. In the beginning, God what? Created. And it was what? See how this all fits together? In other words, if God is the creator who created us to reflect his glory and his fellowship, this means we were created for something greater than just ourselves. And this is true about us individually. This is true about you. This is true about me. But at the core expression of this imago dei, here in the context of scripture, at the core of this is an expression of a partnership between a man And a wife who are in covenant with one another and with God. And so marriage exists for something greater than just the agenda of those involved in it. As we said last week, love is always other-centered. So while the pressure to get married isn't something that our culture at large isn't as great as it has been in the past, the truth is that marriage exists for many people to fulfill my needs and to fulfill my wants and to satisfy my desires and that marriage is the pinnacle of human relationships, that we almost worship it and idolize it. But listen, marriage is not the pinnacle of human relationship. Our relationship with God is. Pastor Ben, uh, who is the senior pastor of Northridge Fellowship Church, who will be here with us next week. Also, they are the, one of the sending churches of us that, started, uh, that helps get us started five years ago. Um, he'll be here next week. But he, uh, and, and 
we planned this series together, actually. Him and I were working on this whole series, and um, we're, we've called the series different things, but in tandem, we've kind of really planned this. And he made something, uh, an interesting statement I wrote down when we were actually just planning this series and even this talk together. And I wrote it down. I said, can I steal that? Can I just, can I steal it and, and say, and, you know, just, just read it? And he's like, oh, yeah, go ahead and take it. And I just, I just want to, I want to read you something that he said as, as we were even talking about this particular message. And uh, I wrote it down and I want to share with it. He, he said this. To put marriage in that place, the, the place of, you know, like it's the pinnacle of human relationship, is to make it an idol and put it on it the weight of expectation it actually cannot bear. And this is true whether you believe in God or not. We have made marriage an idol in our culture. It's a right we cannot deny anyone. And the more weight we put on it, the more it crumbles And the divorce rate skyrockets as people enter it with high hopes and are disappointed. Because marriage, after all, was supposed to make me happy, right? I'm not saying there isn't great joy in a good marriage, but there is something you need to know. That it's critical to a happy marriage. You don't have to be married to be happy. You can be single celibate, and whole, fulfilling all God's purposes with great glory. And Jesus taught there is a day coming when marriage will be obsolete and we will be supremely happy with God. What would it look like for us to believe that God was our creator. And he has created us in his image so that at the core of who we were and the core of our marital relationships, our love relationships, our romantic relationships, we reflected God's character. I just have four things that I think, I, based on uh, that second part of Genesis, I think that we can just kind of draw from. Uh, I'm not going to go into the whole, I know some people view like, some, some people, they, they really like to geek out on this portion of scripture, and we're just not going to go to the depths that some of you go, uh, but we're going to glean from these just some real simple things that I think can be very helpful if at the end of the day you desire to love well and be loved well in return. First thing is this. I think that if we want to be the kind of people who reflect God's character in our marriages, we would be people who see our spouses as a partner, not as a subordinate. Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. Helper. The word helper there in the Hebrew language is actually a word that's constantly used to describe God and his commitment to us and to make up for what often his people are lacking. Just look it over. You can do your own word search. You can find it on Google. This word is actually attributed very much to the character of God and it has nothing to do with about, uh, you know, pecking order. And in fact, like if you want to put pecking order, if God is known as the helper, well then the helper is a pretty big deal. (laughs) 
You know, some of you, I think I've told you the story when Leona and I were starting this journey of figuring out whether or not God was calling us to start a new gospel-centered community of people that would eventually call themselves Clarity Church. We went through this huge screening process that included personality profiles, uh, private sessions with a professional counselor to discern whether or not we had the kind of marriage that would help bring health into the start of a new marriage. And I remember sitting down, I, it was just like yesterday, I, I remember, you know, it was, I think it was day two or three, it was, there was like four days of this stuff, it was just incessant, it was just crazy. Um, or was it three days? I don't remember now, it's just, I want to put it in the back of my mind. <laughs> I was sucking my thumb at the end of it, like, um, but at the end of this, so I remember we walked into this room and, and there is the counselor and we walk in and we're like, hello, hello. We don't know it. You know, like, have you ever walked into a room where you like know that the person's job is to judge you? Like, it's, it's one thing to walk into a room and be like, ah, everybody's judging me. But to walk into a room and be like, hey, this person's getting paid to judge me right now. <laughs> and it's just like the weight is overwhelming. And so here we go. We sit down and, um. He, he says, he opens with this. He goes, well, and you never know it's not good when they start with well. Well, Phil and Leona, I must say <laughs> that in the many years of doing this, and he has done church planning assessment for like over 20 years, I have only met a few people who were married and had your personality makeup. <laughs> and he said, because this is because your profiles are classically known as the greatest of enemies. <laughs> and we're like, where's the encouraging part of this? Like, 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 did we really get a babysitter for our kids for this? Like, I don't know. Like, I'm, uh, I'm thinking about leaving my church. I don't know. Like, and, then, and then he said, but, he said, but you know, and I, I think the, the pause felt like forever. I think he was, he was, he was, He's, you know, getting me by the hook. And then he said, but they're also known as the greatest of lovers. He then uh, began attribute by attribute of our personality, basically went down a list of telling us what we already knew after having been, having been married for 10 years, <laughs> that we are nothing alike. <laughs> Is anyone married to someone that you are not alike to, Right? And you know what's funny? is like when we first get married, we're just like, oh my goodness, we have so much in common. Like, oh my goodness, me too. Well, oh, I have not met anybody that like that, like I like that. And then you get married and then all of a sudden you're just like, wait a minute. What's, go- what's going on here? Right? And, and uh, I think for us, I, I, we were just... If any of you know Leon and I, we are about as opposite as it can get. And what we've learned over the years is that uh, it's the same thing that many couples who, uh, and, and you know them, you look at them and you're like, how in the world? What? What? <laughs> but they're happy and they have a great marriage. And what we've learned is the same thing a lot of those couples, what happy couples have learned is that our differences don't make either one of us less valuable than another. In fact, 
because uh, you know, that's the temptation, right? You, you look at a difference in, 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 in the person you're in a relationship with and you're like, I can't believe they like that kind of music. Judgment, I'm doing it right now. Who likes country music? Huh? Right? And that's, like, that's like, we're totally judging like right now. And we, we don't admit it, but we think a little bit less of them. I mean, we do. But happy couples know that differences don't make any person less valuable than another. In fact, uh, I believe this. If Leona and I were the same, if we had the same strengths, same perspectives, same passions, then inevitably, that had way too many syllables. <laughs> but I like the way it sounded. Can I say the word? Inevitably. I like the other one better, but inevitably. <laughs> if we have the same passion, same strength, same everything, one of us is unnecessary. One of us is unnecessary. Second thing is, uh, uh, I think, so we, you know, we would, you know, first we would see our spouse as a partner, not as a subordinate. I think the second thing, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we continue this series. The second thing is this, we would measure our love by the value we create in the one that we love. Genesis 2.23 says this, At last, the man exclaimed, This one bone is from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman. Or as I like to say, whoa, man. <laughs> Sorry. Dad jokes. In fact, if Adam's reaction to waking up and seeing Eve, I can imagine this for the first time, could be summed up in a meme, it would probably look like this. At last. At last. Right? Okay. You knew I was going to do it. Husbands. How are you looking for ways to fully value your wife. Wives, how are you looking for ways to fully value your husbands? One of the things that breaks my heart the most is seeing how the result of sin causes husbands and wives and really just people in general belittle and devalue one another. And it's sin that causes a person to treat their spouse as inferior to themselves because of the way that God designed them to be as their partner, as their helper. And so I think if we were going to reflect God's character in our relationships, we would measure our love not by the value the one we love brings into the relationship, but in the way we value the one we show love to. Third, I think we'd be champions for unity, not compromise. I might be messing with some people here. We'd be champions. Give me just a chance to explain. Genesis 2.24 says this. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. I gotta be honest with you. I could spend forever talking about this. We could have a two-month series on just this process of what does it mean to leave what does it mean to unite and become one? And while the idea of two becoming one does refer to the intimate expression 
of marriage as we know as sex. We're not going to talk about it. Don't worry about it. The original readers of this book, some of you just got nervous, because I've done it before, so you know I'll do it. Um, The devout Jew, the original reader of this book, would have understood that the two united as one speaks of a unity of purpose and pursuit of God's glory and obedience to accomplishing his mission of being ambassadors of God's love and reconciliation into the world. Two become one wasn't just this idea of sex, but it was this idea of becoming united in the purpose and the pursuit of God's mission of accomplishing his glory and reconciliation in the world. And so unity is different than compromise. What do you mean by that? We'll talk about this in a couple of weeks, but let me just tease your interest real quick. The main difference between compromise and unity is that compromise is a commitment to the wrong thing. Compromise is a commitment to the relationship. Unity is a commitment to the person. See, nobody marries a relationship. Nobody dates a relationship. Nobody gets engaged to a relationship. There are no apps for saying, hey, how can I find a relationship? I mean, I guess they might say that, but at the end of the day, that's not who you date. You don't date a relationship. You don't marry a relationship. You marry what? A person, a person. And here's how you know you're living in compromise in your relationships. When you start saying things like this, I just want my marriage to work. I just want my relationship to work. I just want my, my, my. And you know you're in compromise because the common denominator in all these statements is the word, my. And when your relationship is only about you, you can't actually have unity. And so what do we do? We settle for compromise. You want to come back in two weeks, we'll talk about what is it? Well, not in two weeks. What is that? Compromise? Oh, I don't know. I'll look at it. I'll let you know next week. And so we'd be champions for unity, not compromise. And last but not least, we would pursue honest intimacy. This is something that I will be talking about in a couple weeks. Genesis 2.25, now the man and his wife were both naked. No, this is not the sex talk, don't worry. But they felt no shame. In a couple weeks, like I said, we're going to be talking about how we can make our relationships a safe place in three areas that I I don't think they're the only three areas, but I think I'd go out on a limb and say they're, they're the three areas that make the most difference. How can we create a safe place emotionally, physically, and spiritually in our relationships? For all of us, Christians or not, married or not, I have a question as we kind of close up here. How do you see your relationships having a positive impact for God's glory? Which of these four principles is a strength of your relationship or a growth area? Do you appreciate the differences in other? Or is your love based on the performance of the one you love or the value you create in the one you love? Are you someone who pursues unity or 
Have you been kidding yourself and you've just been hoping for at least compromise? And is your relationship the kind of relationship where you both could be vulnerable, you could be naked and unashamed where your relationships both physically, emotionally, and spiritually feel safe, healthy. How is that for you? As we head into the next couple of weeks, I would hope that we are helpful as we begin to get a greater understanding of how the scriptures would help us build this mentality of pursuing a love that would not just find us winning, but more importantly, loving like Jesus, who, for our sake, gave his life so that we could experience the love of God. And in return, love like he did. Love like a loser. <laughs> Let me pray.